Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Now, who hasn't, Maria Lewis, imagined swirling around a fantastical merman in their mouth like a lozenge as we begin this chapter 11? (laughs) Look, you wrote it. Cavi wrote swirling Amos around her mouth like a lozenge, and I imagined people thinking about swirling around Amos in their mouth like a lozenge. Well, we know what you think about (laughs) when you hear that. Fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to It Came From The Deep, chapter 11, bonus episode. We are rapidly going down the downhill slope of this this book, this show, this after show. Um, We've only got a couple of chapters left and then an epilogue. And we're finally opening stuff. We're finally finding your red herrings, your boxes, your opening stuff. And we're getting begrudging exchanges with incredible Travis Tishop, who we talked at length about in the last episode. We're getting uh, water chases. We're getting big reveals and more characters um, coming, coming into uh, coming into play here and being aware of Amos's existence. It's a kind of cool chapter because you really throw the kitchen sink at it when you consider like it's been sort of a slow burn and now we're ramping up. It's like, Oh no, everyone's going to know everything. And these are the reactions Mm. and this is what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, we like chapter 11, we've got chapter 12, 13, and then epilogue to go. Like we're so close to the end. And so you really don't want to leave anything in your bag of tricks at this point. Anything that you reveal character wise or like story wise, you've earned at this point. And if you, if it feels like you haven't earned it, then I've done a shit job. <laughs> Storytelling. <laughs> but the aim is like, it's all, it's all on the table now. That's it. You know, it's like, it's this, if, if this was a burlesque show, we're at the, like, the pasties <laughs> are off, the tassels are swin- spinning in anti-clockwise and clockwise direction. That's where we're at. It's the money shot point now. It's the business end. And there's no, I don't want to say there's no more mystery, but we're starting, the consequences of the unraveling of the mystery are starting to happen in earnest now. And, um, Hopefully, if you were reading this, you know, from beginning to end, or if you've been listening to the chapters one by one, this starts to feel like an adrenaline point. Not that that I think there's ever necessarily been a non-adrenaline point. It starts pretty adrenaline-y and then just like maintains momentum, hopefully. Um, Art's objective, (laughs) but that's what I intended to do. But by this point, you'd be like, well, I was going to read one chapter, but fuck it. I'll just smash the final three because you just want to get there. I was just going to say that that has the effect of doing it, reading in and around the chapters and and then listening to bits and pieces, editing. It's just like, why not? Why not? we got a few left. And and I also feel like our listeners, some of the listeners of the show might go, no, I'm going to hold off. I'm at chapter 11, chapter 12 is next week. Like I'm just going to wait until it's all out there on the table and do it. But this, this chapter had so much. Um, we in our private lives love to, and and I saw one of our friends, Stu Cooch, uh, share this, is like our whole lives now are just sharing different memes with different private group chats that we have in our lives, mm. um, curating that private group chat. And 
when Storm tries to fight a merman, that could be <laughs> more of a Queenslander shit that we like. Whenever there's like a Queenslander, like, whenever you see like a Queenslander meme and there's like a guy who's super angry and he's like, if you run at me, I'm going to smash you. Like one of them. Like I'll fucking swerve left. We love that meme. We love that Queenslander <laughs> meme. That pops up in conversation way more than you would expect it to. <laughs> I love that. And and so when I saw, when, he, when he lunges at Amos, it's just so great. But look, let, let's take it back. We've come to this moment. Amos has finally found these things that are down on the bottom of the ocean. One mm-hmm. is kind of a bit of a letdown in that it's it's the similar to the sort of research that Ka, uh, that Kai had already discussed with Travis Tisha, mm. but it's the more expansive stuff. And as she gets it and a little bit later on in the chapter goes to Travis and gets him to sort of dissect it from like using his you know scientific intellect, he kind of goes, this is actually way more specific about an individual specimen than we've been led to believe, which is obviously mm. Amos. Um, and then the second which is, is partially why he hit it, you know, because the research is like, is showing like if Travis could work out from the research that it's about a specific specimen and that specific specimen has not been examined post-mortem, that specimen's alive. So he hides the research because he knows that anybody who's like not a fucking idiot um, (laughs) would be like, well, hang on, what is he getting this information from? And it's clearly still alive. We need to find it, you know? Yeah. it's And so they find those two things. They find um, the the full uncut research and then a USB. Um, And so after seeing the first bit of research, there's a great exchange with our boy, Travis Tishop. Um, examining this and then the bulk of the chapter takes place with this convergence of two people following Kaya for for her own Mm. good one being cabbie and storm and this like triangulation and there's this great thing of these people fighting at 2 a.m and if you were ever fighting and this is the other like the great one of the great elements this book and you're writing about this area is if three people are having it out at 2 a.m next to like humans in like on the goldie it would attract attention pretty fucking quickly like because it is deathly silent there and if people are having a screaming match if people are having a domestic you can hear it happening and you will start to see people, yeah you'll start to see people triangulating where that is and then calling the cops and going oh, i think there's a domestic blue happening right now you better go check it out so i just yeah. love that for all of the fact that we are actually having a confrontation here it is going to attract attention and it is going to force you as the author, um, the reader's hand to like jump into this lake with you and actually like, here it is, here it all is. Um, here's a merman that I need to have a fight with as a Queenslander. That's my favorite scene in the whole book. I have to say Yeah. the cabbie storm Amos Kaya quadrangle is, is my favorite scene in the book because it's everything coming to a head all at once. It's the convergence of, Kaya and Amos and the stakes. It's the convergence of Cabby and Kaya's friendship. It really is cemented in concrete now with this moment um, of Cabby keeping secrets and keeping Kaya's secrets, but also then kind of sharing those secrets with Storm because she's worried. And it's the convergence of Kaya and Storm's relationship. Um, it's all of those things all at once. And each of those four characters are so different. Yeah. And it is like that Avengers Assemble bit where, you know, in that movie and you've had so many solo MCU movies to that point, but you're living for the bit where that camera pans around and they're all assembling and 
everyone's together and they're you're, you're waiting for the you're waiting for the i understood that reference or yes. you're waiting for like he's adopted that's what you're waiting for you're waiting for that Specific- exact thing well that's one character though making you know like or those are like individual character moments. I'm talking about the shot in Avengers where the camera is oh, at yeah, knee level and they span around. It was the big money shot from the trailer, but it's also the bit where it's like, dun, 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 and you're like, oh, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> you want that moment, even though this isn't an in battle, this is like just the four of them, the way they're interacting and the way they process this unreal thing is interesting to me. And it's interesting for what it shows too, because it becomes very clear by having external eyes and external witnesses there in Cabby and Storm that Kaya's not just discovered a merman, but there's something to their relationship, that there is something there um, that's more than just like, oh my God, there's a merman. (laughs) Like there's something, there's a special spark there. And sometimes you can't, not to say you can't see it because I feel like they both felt it, but when it's viewed by other people, it adds an additional element to it. It's like when you're dating someone and then you take that person to meet your friends and your friends are like, oh, you know, like <laughs> it's like that, but at 2 a.m. in the morning and with a lot more conflict. So there's two things is the visualization of Amos is that I think your aquatic humanoid version of him. And so therefore the first time we see a merman in the, like your extended universe of books is very humanoid because for a brief second, they're like, who the, like, who the fuck's this guy? Like, and and in the context of nighttime too, if you saw him, like you never see Amos with the exception of Kaya one time briefly when she's like, Oh yeah, I found this thing. Um, She, You never see him during the day. No. And if you saw him during the day, it would be become immediately apparent that human is not what he is. Yes. But at night when there's low light, everybody's wet, the, your skin reflects differently. And it's from a bit of a distance. They're not up as close as Kai is where you can see the scales and the grooves of his skin, but their skin is gray. They don't have like fleshy looking skin. And for a reason, because like, from like a predator's perspective, gray is easy to blend in when you're like underwater and like most of the environment down there, you don't need like a reflective surface. So anyway, his skin's gray. So you'd be like, whoa, that's a gray skinned person. (laughs) (laughs) It would be super fucking obvious if you were viewing it during the day, but in the context of the story, they're viewing it at night. And also Kaya, when Storm and Cabby follow Kaya, they're not expecting her. No be meeting a merman they're expecting to find her having a conversation with a bunch of rocks whose faces she's painted on them and that she's calling Wilson that's what they're expecting and her behavior is not normal and the situation's not normal but the fact that the not normal is the most normal part about it is a real like upside down flip turn for them and it's also like if it was just a splash or just a flash of a tail or something, they've then got to go, well, I didn't see that. And it's all this like kind of nonsense mm. that at this stage of the book or, or at some stages of stories, you're like, just get it over with. Like just fucking get them out, get the tassels whistling through the air, you know, like that's what I want. And so in this moment, it's like that it comes to a head 
And it's just so beautiful. Like the blend, I don't know if any one of the readers who weren't Australian or didn't have any familiar, familiarity with Queenslanders, how beautiful the mashup of like <laughs> a brother who just wants to fight anyone that's interested <laughs> in you and like discovery <laughs> of like a, a, a subterranean mystical figure species like right in front of you. I but that's not- Storm's way of like, rationalizing everything and that's the point is by chapter 11 we've shown you six or seven examples of how he confronts a situation yeah, like a fucking baby um like a toddler having a spat that's how he confronts things like even when they were at the beach like he was ready to like full-on throw down with um Chris, her ex-boyfriend in the car park after their surfing adventure, which is only just a few chapters ago, like that is indicative of who he is. So he's even taking his like dude, surfy, privileged um, approach from real life into a setting that does not give a shit about any of that stuff, any of the advantages he has or bro code or any of that kind of stuff. That doesn't exist <laughs> when you're confronting a fucking merman. Whereas like the the comparison, I guess, of Cabbie and the way she absorbs the situation is like, huh, like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's much more like, okay, that's not completely out of the realm of possibility because we've spoken about that before, how her cultural context informs how she deals with Kaya's theories and Kaya's questions. Yeah, exactly. So when she does, but but it's also like, you got to love Cabby having that background. And she says, huh. And that's exactly, that's the most you inclination. Like, I feel like if we were at a lake, together and a merman was there you'd be like huh a merman and i'd be like like, i fucking knew it (laughs) (laughs) i was right can't wait to tell twitter how right i was (laughs) and i'd be fighting in the opposite direction i'd be running the other way (laughs) (laughs) um but but i feel like that kind of i knew it like huh like that's Mm. funny and also Kaya was the, I knew it. Cabby was the, ha, huh. and Storm was the, like, let's fucking go. You want to go? I don't give a fuck. I'll fight you, Fins. <laughs> Come find me it. out here. Find me on dry land, you soft yeah. cop. <laughs> I'll fight you on the streets. I'll fight you in the water. Oh, Jesus. So Seriously. good. But this scene, though, like, even though I say it's my favorite in the book, my favorite to write, but also my favorite to read, truly. But it's also one of the most important for a few reasons, because even when they leave like humans and they're going back to the car, this scene becomes the catalyst for the conversation between Storm and Kaya about Brie Tyler's death and like the fantastical nature of the Amos, of exposing Amos and exposing Amos's existence leads them to talk about something completely unfantastical, something that's like so grounded in the trauma and reality of their lives, which is Brie Tyler's death. And the fact that, you know, although other people have told her by this point that it wasn't her fault that Brie Tyler died, when Storm tells her this now, this is the first time she believes it. This is the first time that she, when somebody she loves and trusts tells her that, that it's not her fault, that has different weight to it than other people just almost saying in a way what she feels like, you know, they want to hear. Yeah. Anyway. 
Yeah, I think, no, I think you're totally right. And it's also, you know, this is the great, this is why this like urban fantasy is so fun and why your Gold Coast brand of urban fantasy is fun because it is, it is grounded in the reality of the area and then also has these fantastic elements. And I think right now, like that, the Brie thing has been haunting Kaya's mindset since the beginning, like it, and it still has haunted her. And the backflip here is, that again, I love that inclination. It's like, well, where are they? I'll go fight those brothers. You knew something. How come you didn't tell the cops? Like, there's almost like this combative thing. And then it's Dear like, Yeah, Mr. Police, yeah. I gave you all the merman clues. Like, and, what? And, and like, Such why a storm are you, thing. Why are you in the middle of fighting about this? And then, like, Amos is just over there whispering, They're over there, like under some rocks. And then I like, I, there's like <laughs> one line from Cabby in that whole exchange. She's like, Whoa. Like, it's like, there is, I drowned them. Like, I drowned them to stop. And even then he's like, I'll fight you for saving my sister. Like he's just, it's just good. Yeah. It's, you know, there's what, no you know logic to is? it whatsoever. I, I love it because storm makes some people would be like, Oh, it's just kind of like an Australian caricature, but mm. there is, there are so many guys, especially we know Oh my God, do I know? We know so many storms. We know an entire low pressure system. You know what I mean? Like we know probably more storms than cabbies or kayas, if we're being honest. Mate, my school photo, I'm standing next to about seven in a row of these guys. Like it's, it's crazy times. But I think that that's what makes like so fun is they're still backtracking. And what's so great about this whole scene is it like, it is completely disorientating. Like, so all that, I, I don't know whether it's intentional. So I guess this is like the, it's great for us to be discussing it, but you literally take these characters out of their comfort zone. You take them off land. And even though they have this relationship with the water, like they're getting all these truth bombs, basically like one after the other while they're on the water, while their feet are literally not touching the ground. And you're going like, the brothers did it. The brothers are dead. Like we know they're dead. Kaya knew they were dead. Kaya suspected something had happened. And the suspected something had happened is actually a merman. So it just like takes it off into that other realm. So I wonder in that moment, you're like, they're all leaping off into the water. I'm taking them off like dry land. I'm, I'm going to completely discombobulate them. Is that a, is that a, like, I don't know, like it feels to me because I know you and I sort of guess the answer to the question that you're not that kind of like highfalutin i I'm going to make this symbolism bullshit kind of writer. You're like a functional writer, but I feel like in this moment, it kind of is like, it so makes sense that they get all this information while they're literally, while they're in Amos's environment at the very least, like they're in yeah. his zone. I hate, this is, I think, one of the sort of big deviations between you and I and our personal style and preferences because we love so much stuff that's similar and we love, we share so many things in common about not just the kind of specific pop culture examples we love, but the reasons why we love them. And then there's so that we, we take a hard left turn and a hard right turn. <laughs> and I think a big part of that for me is I hate pretentiousness and you froth it. <laughs> like I hate fucking just like putting symbolism in like, ah, uh, um, no, I'll just, <laughs> can I just qualify if it's done well, like if I feel like, exactly what you're doing this is why i think the line is if it feels like it makes sense for the story to be pretentious in those moments and then for me it sings that doesn't take me out of it it gives me more layers to it so like right now i'm like it makes sense because there's a cop coming that they all have to jump in the water 
Mm. But it also makes sense for the story that all these people need to be in the water, be out of their comfort zone to have Amos in front of them for it all to like literally to wash over them all this information. And then when they get out, it's like baptismal. Like if you want to get really Mm. fucking pretentious, like they've come out and Mm -hmm. there's an awakening. And so I guess the thing that I froth is if it makes sense to me, I'm like, frothy baby let's do it if it yes. doesn't if it's for pretentious for pretense sake i can't stand it i'm like you're just trying too hard it doesn't make sense for what you're trying to do so i feel like you would never write it with those things but i feel like that's what resonates with me in this chapter is that i like it it feels like it has those layers right at this moment i have intentional symbolism in all my stories but it is literally it's always something that's relevant to the story but there's this tweet that i'm going to read out to you by um dystopian alone dystopia alone dystopia alone um log lady on twitter um that they tweeted the other day it made me fucking laugh so hard but um they said i always imagine novelists waking up like i need to write five thousand words today more if possible and then i always imagine poets being like phew seeing that bird this morning really took it out of me (laughs) and then the next tweet goes a bird the moon a particularly evocative tree God forbid something reminds you of your grandmother's kitchen and it made me laugh so hard because I I'm on deadline right now at the moment. And my word count for the day is literally um, 5,000 words a day. Like that's what I need to stay on target. Right. So I was like, lol, that's specific, but also that same thing of like, yeah, well, of course when there's symbolism, I layer in meaning. I like to have lots of different layers to meaning, whether it's like, places or names or the types of supernatural creatures that I'm using or the types of story conventions or even something like you the way I use tropes like the safety deposit box trope is used in this book it just so happens to be underwater (laughs) so it's like put your thing down flip it and reverse it to quote the great Missy Elliott um (laughs) the Shakespeare of our times so I like to have stuff like that in there, but it needs to be serviceable. And it's the same reason I get annoyed with stuff when it gets to award season. And we talk about, you know, things that Oscar films, Oscar bait and award season bait, things like, for instance, this is a filmmaker that um, is really hit on miss for me. He's made one of my favorite films of all time, the new world. Uh, We're talking about Terrence Malick, but he's also made something that shits me to tears and is the embodiment of everything I hate about award season (laughs) and pretentious storytelling. And that's tree of life. And that's a movie that a lot of people quite liked, but that for me is like, people just fucking got up caught up in the, like, I have a hard on hype hysteria around like, wow, it's so beautiful. Cause like there's dinosaurs and stuff too. And I'm like, it's so fucking dumb. Like we're looking at a, a, at a tree and like, it's supposed to encapsulate the meaning of life. Like just tell me an effective story and layer in the meaning as you go so that it can still serve a purpose as a piece of narrative storytelling. If you want to make an experimental yes. film, fucking do that in your own time. Um, was my point, but there's a line that Kaya says that about how she like, she came here looking for answers and what she found was Amos instead. And that's supposed to be a summary of the whole situation. She went there yes. with human problems and looking for answers to a human question. And what she found was something superhuman. And then her problems become exponentially superhuman as well. And that's the same the same motivation that drove her there also drove Cabby and Storm there. They went there looking for answers to a different question, but the answer was the same. 
and that was Amos. And so that propulsion, hopefully, even though like they all have a similar motivation, um, they all have a similar mechanism to achieve that motivation is, is the aim and was the intention. And hopefully if that works, that's always great. If you can fit a fucking baptism analogy in there, (laughs) also awesome. But it's like, oh yeah, you know, whenever there's water. But for instance, there's a lot of stuff um, in my next book that will come out, The Rose Daughter, which is coming out April, 2021. There is chapter set in the past, chapter set in the present. And so it alternates like that throughout the book in the same way that The Wailing Woman had a chapter set in... um, Sadie's perspective and a chapter set in Texas perspective, right? So yes, that's like the alternating chapters. Can you can you can you uh, keep up the show's pronunciation of Texas as Texas Tejas Contos? <laughs> Te- it's Tejas Contos on this show. Thank you very much. Um, but in the Rose Daughter, there's a lot of symbolism used, and it's because there we're covering a big scope of time. And that is really key. And the things in her past that resonate in her future have to echo in a certain way that the symbolism becomes really important. So even if you just like take the title, The Rose Daughter, the title is a specific reference to something in her past that echoes through time and through her life. So there are relevant times to deploy it, but at the same time, you still want to make sure that it's... You don't want to be... All analogies and no story. Or you also don't want it to be all stories and no analogy. You want to have both. You want to have um, the action is the juice, but also the juice (laughs) is the action. (laughs) I think we have to finish there. Um, What I would just say is, yeah, like at the, I think what's great about this conversation and just in general is I'm, I'm, I'm the reader and you're the author and how I'm interpreting it and the lines and the things that are really resonating with me, you have to contend with. And you're like, huh, I didn't think you would like that. Or like, wow, you really love that Lawson's line, you creep. Mm. Um, and I think that, <laughs> yeah, he's such great. and uh, so I think that that's a good way to approach any uh, discussion on it is, you know, you're right. You're writing it out there and some things are intentional, but other things people are just going to come along with and they're going to throw themselves with it. And I think anyone who's actually listening to this and going through the whole process as well is going to go, oh, I wonder why you didn't cover this or I wonder why you didn't talk about this or I love this line. And like, that's, that's for all of us to do. But I think that that's kind of the intent of this entire project is to like go through and put it up against some, some significant scrutiny and talk about the things that resonate to both of us. Um, and you particularly revisiting it in the context of the rest of the books that you're writing and me, like, because it's my favorite or maybe second favorite. I do love the, uh, the wailing woman um, a lot. I think more, I think about it. I think both of those are right on par for my favorites that you've done, but like, um, but yeah, I, I think that's, it, it's fun that you kind of don't own it. Like, at the end, right? You're like, it's out there and it's for people to, to tangle with once you've released it. Yeah. Because I just remember being in high school and I think this is like a really uh, universal experience, right? When you are in English class and you have to do, you get assigned a book for a semester or a few weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have to do all this essays about the book and the meaning and all this stuff. And, oh, they're referring to this thing and they're referring to that thing. And when they said read, what they really meant was this. And you're like, did they though? Or like, did is that what they fucking meant? Or are you just trying to imbue stuff with meaning because you've had, you know, we're all analyzing books from fucking 40 years ago. God, heaven forbid we 
analyze a modern text that might be relevant to actual modern problems. And you've just, there's been decades upon decades upon decades for people to read and reread and overanalyze these stories to the point where, oh, it's not just like a letter opener. The letter opener has to be a representation of the sharp peer of society and how it can pierce into that. And you're like, no, no, some things can just be a fucking letter opener. It doesn't have to be, not everything has to be a metaphor or an analogy or like some Trojan horse of piece of symbolism, you know, sometimes a, a fucking, you know, they're driving a Suzuki Jimny in this chapter. And sometimes that can just be because that was the car you learned to drive in, a Suzuki Jimny. You know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> that's just in there. It's not a metaphor for like, oh, Suzuki, like, you know, capitalism and the industrial revolution. Like, <laughs> it's just a fucking Jeep that's practical to have on the Gold Coast. And then other times there- are- Is the Jimny soft up? Nah, it's hard top. You can get a hard soft top, top but um, it, they're really hard to find. It's pretty much mm. always hard top. And it's like a little like three door. So you got to do that annoying. I don't like. I can pull the seats forward to get in the back. They're a great car. But as soon as you start going over 70 kilometers per hour, the suspension really can't handle a certain amount of speed. So if you like Gold Coast, it's a good car because it's a lot of like back streets and like you're not really going fast, not fanging along the highway. But as soon as you are fanging it along the highway, it's away, and you're like, okay, all right. But, this but, is- but, but also soft tops always freak me out from a practical level of like when you're at the beach every day, like salt on a soft top, it's mm-hmm. only a matter of time before that, like that it eventually starts getting eaten away. And it's like, so at least a hard top, you know, that, you know, got to wash the car probably pretty regularly to keep avoiding some rust, but you know, at least it's a little bit more sturdy. I always just think of getting decapitated at the top more than anything because I'm just, especially in a Jeep, especially in a Jeep. Like I, the amount of stories that I've covered, um, particularly around the Gold Coast area and around Stradbroke and stuff where Mm. there have been fatalities in ATVs or Jeeps, which by most of their nature, like the types of Jeeps I'm talking about are the ones with soft tops or no top or a, a soft top that's been pulled back. So it's convertible. ATVs don't have tops. But um, people get killed that way yeah. because the the jeep rolls and there's nothing. No, like destination, yeah. Gold Coast Highway. There's no exoskeleton. Not even on the Gold Coast Highway. These are always on <laughs> sand dunes because it's like it's unpredictable. As soon as that bitch rolls, it's all over Red Rover. So that was a massive tangent um, off the topic of analogies. But yeah, long story short, that is something that I'm always. If something's relevant to the story and adds meaning and purpose, great. But I, you do really have to be extremely brutalist about most of it. And if it doesn't serve a purpose or it's not relevant, get it out of there. Get out of you know, it. like the, we don't need to sit here and look at a sunset. Like if you get to do that in one book, right? Then you can't ever do it again. You get one reflection, reflective moment while viewing a sunset and that's it for life. You know, you get one more, like I've washed myself clean and then it's gone, you know? So you got to really like use those moments carefully. And you don't and know spread them out. your reflective sunsets until they're gone. Until they're gone. And I think I, I'm trying to, I, I shot my load early on a few things like um, <laughs> who's afraid Tommy literally like yeeting herself off a cliff into the great unknown that's done on book one we're good you can't do that again like there's no more like throwing yourself off whatever Kaya like plunging into the depths to look for answers you know literally 
somebody who's submerging herself into darkness to hopefully try and come out the other side with like the light, the but lost weight of I think you've, explanation. Can I just say, this might be a stretch, but I still think you've got in your future writings, a safety deposit po- box in a Swiss bank scene. Mm. I think you've still got it in you. You did it underwater here, just cheeky, you know, for, you know, but I think, I think you've still got a safety deposit box heist in your career. I have learned so much about the myriad of ways that you can creatively use safety deposit boxes. (laughs) Like you think it can only be used in an OJ Simpson explanation where (laughs) they open Nicole Brown Smith's safety deposit box after her death and there's a letter in there being like if i die you know he did OJ it probably did it which you know <laughs> definitely did it oh god they just had all the evidence and witnesses and dna but anyway uh if the glove don't fit you know you must have quit or whatever um you but- ain't shit sorry i got that wrong you ain't shit you ain't shit <laughs> but um I've been re-watching Law and Order SVU from the beginning, just a casual like 600 episodes Ugh. of a 21-year series. Like Law and Order SVU was the spinoff of Law and Order, which ran for 11 years. Mm. And then the spinoff has gone for 21. Like that is wild shit. But an amazing show consists, it's staggering to me how consistent it is. It's a procedural, but they're so inventive with the dynamics of the story. And it's really like aspirational storytelling because there's a bunch of shit that pops up with a safety deposit box in literally the first episode, which is about a taxi driver who gets castrated and it turns into this whole thing about war crimes and women seeking vengeance. And I was like, ah, amazing. It had more plot in it than fucking like critically acclaimed thrillers that I have seen and was more effective in 45 minutes. But the way they use safety deposit boxes throughout for different stories and like as vessels to push the, like the direction of the narrative in different ways is super interesting to me because I've never like, I've never felt the need to use a safety deposit box. It's also not really an Australian thing. Like it really is something that like, it's, it's a crazy relative asked me one time if I had a safety deposit box or if I could open one. And I was like, well, you know where right. they have them here in Australia is at storage units. Yeah. So storage units have facilities for safety deposit box. Banks don't really have them because you need X amount of geographical space. And as we know, most of the banks in this country are always trying to downsize. So they want you to come in and like, they have one teller and that teller has to do <laughs> 82 tasks. And then everything else is like, oh yeah, just do it online. Whereas in places like Sweden in particular, a lot of, pretty much Europe as a whole, the UK, um, Russia, they have a lot of safety deposit boxes because they're all about that old banking system. Anyway, that was a tangent. So Super tangent. I definitely want to use it at some point, but we'll see. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing real quick? Yeah, cool. Um, as I was looking through the notes for this chapter that I had made as I was like doing stuff, um, my friend Katya, who she ends up popping up in one of the later books as a goblin, um, who's like a kawaii goblin who's a nail manicurist. She's my real nail manicurist in real life. Anyway, um, when each time I have a novel come out, she will do my nails in a set that looks like the cover of the books. And as um, like we're talking all this stuff about like plunging into Lake Humans and Kaya and Storm and Cabby and Amos having this big showdown, 
that was her favorite chapter. Like she was talking about how this chapter was, you know, the one that she was like, oh, I'm all in. Like she had enjoyed it up until this point, but then she was like, this was the elevation chapter for me. And um, she did a set of nails when it came from the deep came out for me that recreated the cover on my fucking cuticles. <laughs> like goddamn Da Vinci, my guy. It was like Da Vinci could never. It was insane. It's such a small, difficult canvas. So and it was genuinely, he couldn't. Like, let me see him work with some like gel acrylics, you know? I'd like to see it. Um, but it was amazing. And I just want to shout her out because I know she's a fan of this book and a fan of this story. And I'll put a I'll put a pick a few picks up on the Twitter thread for this bonus chapter episode as I do each week if you are looking for additional material that we talk about and these bonus apps check on Twitter because I put it all up on the on the ongoing on a, it came on from the big deep thread. Twitter thread big thread yeah so you can go back through all the old episodes like when Kate and I were talking about Piha Beach <laughs> and grown men sobbing in the surf as they nearly die I've got that live footage, like that live footage is all archived online and I've, I've put links to it up there. So if there's anything like this that you want to get into, highly recommend checking out that thread. It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from bestselling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe and share with your mermates.